Welcome to the broadcast. Every Arizona homeowner's best friend. Thanks for tuning in. It's Rosie on the house. Your weekend wake-up tradition. I talk to the trees. Stop and hear what I say. Come on around back, Arizona. It is Saturday morning, 8 o'clock, the outdoor living hour here of Rosie on the House. Your Saturday morning tradition since 1988. Already the second Saturday of the month. And if you're following along in your Rosie on the House homeowner handbook that we send out every year, it's got a calendar in it along with all of our talking points for uh, the broadcast that we have preloaded. And if you're looking and following along, you know we're talking about the acacia today. But you can also join the conversation by calling in one 767 4348 That's 1-888-ROSIE for you. Text questions can be sent to 411-923. Or if you'd like to snap a picture, a short video, a little help on plant or insect identification, you can email that to info at rosieonthehouse.com. Our Talking Trees guest today, we've got Justin Ronner of Agriscaping back in studio. Welcome. Hey, thanks for having me back. Last time you were here, you were going out to a home show right afterwards. Any big plans today? Well, big plans today will be harvesting some uh, sugarcane out at Queen Creek Botanical Gardens in preparation for uh, Roots and Boots out in Queen Creek next week. Excellent. Well, and we'll talk about that because that is a – I have seen that Roots and Boots advertised and promoted. I've never made it out that far from, from my neck of the woods uh, to attend, but it looks like a great event. Well, uh, on the acacia tree, we were talking before the broadcast. Let's kind of back up and go more from a global view and then just start zoning it into you know, what, what types of acacias we use here in Arizona. Yeah, there's hundreds of types of acacia trees all across the world uh, – you know, into Africa, that's where the majority of them are. And uh, but a lot of them coming up from Australia are the types that we're typically growing here that are very desert adapted and uh, great, very sturdy tree, evergreen tree. And uh, you know, globally, the only real pest uh, that the the biggest pest of all the acacia trees is the giraffe. <laughs> and so we don't have to worry about that here. But, Shit. Uh, Shouldn't have to worry about that here. No, and but it does let you know a little bit about it's got some good nutritional value for foraging. Uh, you know, if a giraffe is eating it, then it's a it's kind of a good forage type tree. But it's also got some other great qualities that here in Arizona, I think we can really, uh, really, it's a great add to uh, to your gardens here in Arizona. And so, what species of acacia do we uh, plant here? So there's really uh, five different varieties that we grow here in Arizona. Uh, there's the shoestring acacia, the willow acacia. The sweet acacia, and then there's two thorny types. There's the white thorn and the cat claw. And those are the ones. Neither one of those sound fun. (laughs) No, no, yeah, white thorn and cat claw. That's that's the one that you put next to your neighbor you don't like. Those are the. (laughs) Our natives have enough thorns and pokey things. If we're going to put something else in, but yeah, you could totally the privacy screen against that annoying neighbor. Right, and they are more of a low-growing type acacia, whereas the other three varieties that are nice, big, evergreen, taller type growing trees that uh, beautiful specimens that can grow closer to a wall than probably any of the other trees. That we have here in Arizona, especially for our our subdivisions. I mean, it, in the uh, in the world of uh, HOAs, you know, this is one of the trees that in the last twenty years it was popular, pretty popular twenty years ago. The shoestring acacia, as well as the willow acacia, those ones you can put up close to a wall, and those are the only ones right now out of those twenty year old trees that are sticking around and are still on the approved lists of most of the HOAs around here. And why can we plant them so close to a wall? 
The root systems on them aren't as invasive as the Sisu, which was another one that 20 <laughs> years ago everybody wanted. Uh, and now every HOA is taking it out and making it a, a, a prohibited tree. But the, the shoestring and willow acacias, they, they seem to hold themselves real, real well in their own space. They don't topple over in windstorms because they got a little more open habit. And, and they, they, it's more of a filtered light. You're not going to get a really heavy shade off of these guys. But uh, they do have a, a, a means of holding themselves upright, creating some great shade, and not knocking down block walls for you. Those are all good things. Yep. And in an HOA situation or a com- you know, master plan community where the houses are probably a little closer together, that's always one of the things we're looking at is what – how do we have enough space to plant this type of tree? This kind of sounds like, uh, and I, I wouldn't ever recommend anyone planting it, but the like an Italian cypress. You see, you know, in, in a place where you could put one of those, it sounds like you could put one of these acacias. Uh, almost. Maybe I wouldn't go, you know, within two feet of the wall, but, you know, five feet, you'd be okay. And of the ones, let's, the thornless, uh, uh, the, the thorn ones aside, there was the weeping, the willow, and... What was the shoestring, the shoe willow, string. and the sweet? Okay. Shoestring, willow, and, and sweet. What do they look like? So the, the shoestring acacia, it grows pretty tall and upright. Usually get it, they'll get up about 40 feet tall uh, on their max. They grow pretty fast. I mean, you'll get it to about 30 feet in the first four years, which is uh, really great for a, for a tree here. It's going to only be about, uh, about 20 feet wide at that tallest point, so it's more of an upright, columnar kind of growing tree, but has a nice, um, almost a willowy look to it as well, the shoestring does, but it's going to have longer leaves. Its leaves are probably about six inches here, I'm showing you, but, you know, radio, you can't see much. But uh, what you got a, a longer leaf to it. Uh, it's evergreen, kind of a waxy kind of feeling leaf. It does produce a little bit of a flower, um, kind of late spring. I mean, they're starting to bud and going to be blooming all the way through uh, early summer. And it's kind of a puffball-looking little thing. They're very small, a little smaller than a dime. And that little puffball, it's, a, it's kind of a, a creamy kind of colored flower. And it'll produce a pod. So it's it's relatively clean tree, but it will drop a pod in the summertime that's got this little black bean with a little red thing on it. And the birds seem to love the little red things. Uh, but it will drop those pods, and those pods, though, are also really good forage-type stuff. I mean, so it is a bean-type tree, but the look of it, nice evergreen, kind of a darkish green, but the bark of it, very husky kind of bark, dark bark. I mean, it's it's a great dark-barked tree. If you want a good contrasting, you know, tall, tall uh, trunked tree to complement a white wall or to create some contrast and stuff, it's a great one. Uh, so, cool tree. And... As we get closer to the summer, we always get this question: What kind? What's the best tree to put by a pool? To put by a pool, and I don't think I've ever heard anyone say an acacia. An acacia, I wouldn't put very close to uh, a pool. But Those, if if I wanted it to create some shade for my pool, I'd still keep it about twenty feet away from the pool. But it because it will grow tall enough. If I put that on the west side, it's going to create some shade for that pool in the afternoon, which would be nice for that pool environment because it's trash because it's a heavier kind of drop. You know, it's the bean. It's dropping pretty close to itself. It's not blowing away in the wind. It's going to drop within within the, the leaf structure of it. That's where it falls. Now, we'll get into the context of what agriscaping means, but for somebody like you who you know, utilizes a lot of stuff, I don't see you raking up leaves and throwing them away. You're composting them and, you know, repurposing and 
we're utilizing it. That waxiness, does that create a problem in composting? Do you have to go longer? Are they a decent composting leave? What, what do you have to do with your trash disposal? We'll call it a, hard, a high carbon variety of, uh, of a compost. And carbon's good. You got to have it in your, your mixes with your compost. It's usually a 30 to 1 ratio carbon to nitrogen in order to get a really good compost blend. And, and for those that were on my we- webinar this last week, we talked all about that. And so that ratio, it's, it's important. But that high carbon content just means it's gonna, you're going to have a drier pile, which means you need to wet it down more to get it to compost and get it to compost quickly. But it does add a lot of good texture. It's something that I probably would put through a, a little shredder or something first, something I can kind of break it up because they are so long. I want to break the ends of that waxiness so that it can break down. You know, if I leave it just full leaf, it's not going to break down very fast at all. Uh, and that's kind of one of the downsides and really getting leaf from it is kind of hard because they don't drop the leaves very much. And that's the upside is that they don't drop the leaf. They just drop that bean and they drop the little powdery puff balls, but those things, they'll break down really fast. I kind of, I did not realize they didn't drop leaves all that much. I kind of no. pictured them as a, as a messier dropper when I was looking at, at the pictures of them. I thought, oh man, I bet after a year you got piled, but they, no. they it's just the Okay. It's those bean pods. That's the main thing that it's going to be dropping. It puts most of its effort. I mean, it's it's a desert type African or a, you know Australian type tree that they they're trying to conserve as much as they can. So the only thing they're going to drop is their posterity. You know, they're dropping beans and trying to grow more. <laughs> and if there is a downside, that's the downside most often of the acacia. It's the bean pods, but not just that. Those beans are usually viable, and they'll sprout up a nice little bean sprout for you. What do you do with the bean pods? So the bean Let the pods, birds eat them. Yeah, the birds, the <laughs> okay. birds will eat those pods, but the pods themselves will compost those. I can feed them to my sheep. I can feed them to my goats. I mean, that's that's some other advantages if you got those. But most HOAs won't allow those animals unless you call them, you know, productive dogs. I mean, I don't know. Put it on a leash and take it around your neighborhood. <laughs> you had a name for a chicken. Oh, ornamental jungle fowl. Yes, that's, that is the name <laughs> that they go by in our HOA environments. Ornamental jungle fowl. I like that. <laughs> And that's, it's all in the naming. <laughs> right. And and there's a lot of HOAs that have prejudice jargon, and we've we've talked about that probably in years past and stuff too. But that's we're trying to help get that prejudice, prejudice jargon out, help people be more self-reliant and really accommodate their neighbors in the way that they need to be, you know. Well, and that's what we do here at Rosie on the House is uh, point of the broadcast and the outdoor living hours to help teach you or educate you or at least inspire you to grow your own, whether it's shade tree, fruit tree, uh, gardens, landscapes, lawns, and how they all work together. There's an application for them all to work together, even uh, uh, in, in our desert environment. We've got uh, you know, water resources that we always have to consider, but if we're not growing our own, we're very reliant on how far it's got to be shipped in from and what could happen on the supply chain getting here. So the more reliant we can be here in the desert. And we talked about this a couple uh, weeks ago in the Farm Bureau. We had a water uh, consultant in, and he was just talking about the fact that you know farming is natural to the desert because you have to farm to survive. It's not like the deep woods of Kentucky where you can just hunt and live off the land or you know the swamps of Louisiana where you can live off of crawfish and uh, catfish your whole life. You know, In the desert, we have to be able to uh, grow and supplement for the lack of you know, new, you know, things that we eat and that would nourish us. That's right. And because uh, I can't live on creosote. You can't live off creosote? I, I can't. I don't know if you've tried. It's well, not fun. I don't know. The smell alone actually seems nourishing, right, <laughs> when it rains out there. It's but a great that's, smell. It's, a, it it's, a great don't, smell. it's like coffee. It never tastes like it smells. 
Well, and and I think water conservation, big issue, obviously, here in Arizona, uh, more so as a theme for political movements than it is for a reality, I think, especially if you're East Valley side of the valley. I mean, there's there's a lot of water and a lot of available water, but we got to use it wisely. And uh, unfortunately, there are a lot of challenges going uh, throughout the, the the West and around the Colorado River District that is is causing a lot of concern. But if you're able to grow your own stuff at bar, bar none, that's your best option. And if you're able to recycle your own water on site, that's another great option. What's the tree's favorite month? September. Heck no, that's never a good idea. Handing my staff to not work. Hot mics, hot mics. <laughs> we often say the best parts of the uh, broadcast can sometimes be during the commercial breaks, but we don't get political during the broadcast. So, uh, you know, we th- those conversations are held off air. <laughs> Very good. Very. Might have had a little bleed over on an, on an open mic there. I'm not sure. But we were talking uh, – you had another point on the acacia you wanted to make before moving on. I don't know if we even remember that, what that point was, but the way we, our bunny trail conversation went during that break. <laughs> well, the, the acacia in terms of productivity, what usage we have for them, uh, there's, there's a lot of uses. Like we were talking about, there's foraging opportunities that we could do with the shoestring acacia and the willow acacias. Uh, but there's also really cool things about the wood. I mean, the wood right now, acacia wood, is one of the highest prized woods out there because it doesn't rot. It doesn't rot very well at all. And that's a good thing when you're trying to build things. I mean, people build stuff out of teak wood, so that would be kind of the high-end teak wood. Like if I'm making a a wood uh, mat for an outdoor shower, for instance, then I'd use a, a teak wood. But you can also use acacia wood, and acacia wood is beautiful wood. And so when you do occasionally have to trim these big acacia trees... You can trim that stuff off, and that wood is a, is a very, has high utility. You know, it's not a it's not a very brittle wood. It's kind of a softer wood, but it is very. So, if I did have it as a floor mat, an acacia floor mat, it's going to last a long time in a very water wet environment. But it'll be a little softer to the feel, almost like an ash, but more resilient again to the to the weather. So, kind of fun tree. And you know, that's something that we don't talk a lot about when we're talking trees is, is the wood byproducts and you know, what type of grain they have and their uses for it. That's a, a great ad- angle that I'm going to have to start adding to our tree conversation. You know, the, like mm-hmm. a Palo Verde, there's only so much you can do. You don't even want to grill with Palo Verde, but mesquite, you totally grill with mesquite. That's yeah. That's great. People even pay extra for that in some parts, but uh, – you know, it's not like we're doing a lot of carving with Palo Verde or, you know, the availability of the woods. Also, uh, another thing, you know, like the ironwood, that's a great slow burner, but yep. we don't, it's a slow growing tree. <laughs> we slow don't have the tree. availability of, of the wood, the ironwood would buy products that we would other, you know, other faster growing varieties. Well, and definitely on the Palo Verde, it's like that's when I have cooked a, a meal over a, a fire done with uh, Palo Verde wood, and it was sour. I'll just say that. It was kind of a soury, smoky kind of feel. Smell. You got to try it once. You know, <laughs> you gotta try it once. Yeah, that good desert smoked Every- meat there. It's, it's different than your mesquite. Mesquite, definitely a sweeter, more aromatic. I love that. That tree is a good smoker. Pecan wood. I mean, there's a lot of pecan trees here in Arizona, too, and that's one of the best. I mean, that's a prized wood across the country, so... And you can I'll get a lot of it from the orchards as they clean out and they're 
uh, trim an old dead wood out, or and I've even noticed in Picacho, there's a lot of rows they've completely taken out and planted new uh, baby pecan trees in there as they're you know getting ready for the next 70 year cycle of that tree life. And you know you see big piles out there and a sign right there. I never pass it when I've got time to stop with a chainsaw and cut it all up. But you know there's there's definitely the availability if you've got the time to drive to one of the pecan orchards to pick up you know, the dead wood that's sloughed off. Yep, that's right. I mean, there's there's even a few people that forage it, and then they make a living just off foraging pecan trees, even here in the valley. You know, they'll go around and see people that have pecan trees. They'll get in touch with them and say, hey, we'd love to help trim your tree for you for basically for free, which is kind of rough. You just let me take the wood with me. Yeah, exactly. That's that's the trade-off. And, and uh, you know, the, the acacia tree, I mean, like a pecan tree, it's it's a, a long-term tree. It's a 70-year kind of perspective-type tree. The the acacia trees are also in that same category. Not necessarily I'd put it in a 70-year category for what you can plant on the lifespan of your tree. Maybe a 30 to 40-year, but it's a good long-standing tree that'll be good for your good for your garden and good for your home. Well, and if it gets to 30 feet in the first four years, you know, a pecan tree, it takes a, you know, 10 years before it's oh, anything. They're pretty slow, but once they get up there, they'll, they'll stay 60 feet for you for quite a long time. If, yeah. you, if you want a big, tall, beautiful tree and you want that whole fall effect, you know, where they drop the leaves, well, the, that pecan tree will definitely do that for you. But it does drop nuts, and if you don't like nuts or are allergic to them, it's not <laughs> probably a good tree for you. You just have to be real careful with your zinc. You know, they need a lot of zinc for them to taste good uh, if you're doing a pecan for uh, your, your your own personal forage as well. Correct, or even to get them productive. And that's another thing, too. The zinc also helps uh, fortify those leaves so that they can work against uh, one of the challenges that most people have with their pecan trees. If they're not well-fed, they're going to get a lot of aphids in them in the spring and summertime, and then they'll drop a bunch of little sap. People think it's the juggalone saps, but it's not that. It's actually just aphid droppings, really sticky stuff. <laughs> gets all over your car and is a pain, pain to, to deal with and clean up, but... If you mitigate that in advance by a healthy tree, you got no problem. Now, how do you like to feed your trees? Do you do granulars? I, do you do inline drip, liquid applications? What a combination of all? Well, I, I was about to just laugh and say yes. Yeah, <laughs> it, it really just depends on the the situation where I've got the tree, where it's how its roots are actually working. Um, in general, I like the granular type stuff because it's more of a slow release, but liquid in an inline system that drips right with the water, also a great way to go. If you'd like to join the conversation or ask your tree or landscape question, we've got Justin Rahner in studio, one 767 4348 That's one 888 for you. Text questions, 411-923, or you can email us at info at rosyonthehouse.com. On a beautiful Arizona Saturday morning, the warmest one we've had all year, I had, I believe. I actually got a little warm in my jacket this morning when I was feeding the animals before leaving for the broadcast and thought, I guess it is already the middle of March. Yeah, the heat is coming. The heat is coming. But right now we're in that little transition phase where we can enjoy it a bit. And it's a great time to be growing those trees to prepare ourselves for some shade that will help, you know, protect us from the crazy heat that we all know is coming. And if we plant now, uh, you know, obviously trees take a little while to grow and they always 
joke about the best time was 20 to plant one was 25 years ago. The next best time is now. There's still plenty of time to plant before the summer. Absolutely. I mean, we, we try to, you know, we shut down planting new trees in usually mid-May. I mean, we don't want to go usually past that time. And we're really selective on which types that we would start growing at that time also. Most of them, it's now's the time. I mean, now's the time to be getting your trees in. Uh, give them some time to, to get established a bit before, you know, the the sun comes, the really hot sun comes. But not only that, the big winds come. And that's one of the, I think, differentiating factors of the willow acacia and the shoestring acacia. Uh, is that those ones, not only do they grow fast, but they're not the ones you're going to see toppled over after a windstorm because they are more of that shoestring kind of looking thinner leaf. They they flow very well in the wind. They look so beautiful. They wave well, and they don't topple over. So that's a, one of the major benefits, I think, too, is a wind-tolerant, very heat-tolerant, uh, and shade-producing tree that grows fast. And you've got great uh, wood byproduct at the point that it's time to either do a big trim or it's uh, at the end of its life, and it's time to take out and replant. That's right, and uh, it's a it's a good carving little little tree too. If you guys are into wood carving, acacia can be a good wood carving tree. And uh, again, beautiful wood, so much color inside that wood. It's got some dark tones, a little bit of red tones in it, and stuff too, and then some light tones. So you got some good contrasting wood wood grains. I mean, look it up if you want to get a. You're looking for a, a beautiful wood specimen thing. Acacia is one of the one of the top selling wood wood types now in some of these modern homes, especially these uh, modern farm style homes for uh, above their fireplaces. You know, making some acacia wood accents here and there, and so it's, it's great wood. Now, during the break, you had said a word I had never heard before, and I, I know creosotes have a way of protecting themselves and not letting other plants grow around them, so they. You know, in their canopy, they get the water resources at the time it's available to them. But you actually had a word for what it – a, a, a chemical that's it, in the tree that uh, – The juggalone. The juggalone. The juggalone, yeah. It's in a lot of the nut trees, especially in the walnut trees. Uh, if, if you've ever been up in some parts of northern Arizona where there's uh, wild-growing uh, black uh, walnut trees – one of the distinct features of the surrounding area of one of those trees is there's nothing growing underneath it. And those juggalones are literally inhibit other plants from growing. And so big trees like pecan trees, that's one of the trees that has a slight amount of juggalone in it that could inhibit other plants from growing underneath them, but not nearly as much as these uh, the walnuts. Walnuts is by far the, the one with the most. Is that what's in creosote to keep them? Is that the same thing or is that a little different? On creosote, I think it's a little different thing. That one I'll have to look a little bit more on because I don't eat much creosote. <laughs> so, <you know. laughs> no, but just that ability for a tree to protect its, its turf from other plants growing. Right. And that, there's a lot of different plants that do that. I mean, there's a there's a wild um wild tobacco that actually grows up around here. You'll you'll catch it growing up in some of your your potted plants and things and it's got a, an effect that it has a natural it's it's leaf alone has a natural um inhibitor of seed growth. So, you know, talk about pre-emergent herbicides, well, just a little bit of uh that mulch from a, a tobacco plant actually is really natural way to keep anything from growing around it. So very cool. I'd, one more time, juggalone. 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 I like that. All right. So let's talk about the concept of what agriscaping is. If you're new to the broadcaster, hadn't heard Justin before, uh, it, you, you hear it and you're kind of like, why didn't I think of that? <laughs> right. So it's, you bring together the best of productive agriculture with the best of ornamental landscaping. That is agriscaping. 
and it's it's really what we consider the ultimate garden. You know, it's a garden that you know that tastes as good as it looks. You know, you can have the beautiful garden, but eat it too, and get some productivity out of it as well. It's like we're looking for utility as a byproduct of a beautiful garden, a beautiful landscape. It's like it doesn't have to just be pretty and produce a bunch of waste that goes to the landfill. All these trees and and plants that you know we see as God has created all have a purpose when we you know, nurture them and we cultivate them in a way, and then we utilize all their utility through its end. You know, it's like, oh, there's always a great place for it. You just got to find, well, what, what was it here for and how can it benefit you know, humanity and the globe? And so we're all about uh, really beautifying and replenishing the earth in a way that helps align the resources and not have them jumping from one state to another state. It's like, try to make it as localized as we can. You know, it's kind of silly to me if we're shipping a bunch of you know, wood products in from out of state or out of country just to make compost for Arizona. But we do that. I mean, there's hundreds of tons of of material that we bring into this state just to create compost for a lot of the bagged products that we have for soil. I'm like, really? And yet we still have mounds and mounds of waste that are going to the landfills that aren't being chipped down or utilized or recycled in a very effective way. So agriscaping is a way to localize that system of recyclability, but still have that beautiful garden you always wanted, that beautiful landscape. It's like we don't we don't skimp on the beautiful, the hardscaping and pools and all those structures. We don't skimp on any of that. It's just what we put in those softscape paces and how we utilize the water that makes the difference. Uh, we had an opportunity to tour the transfer station on I-17 uh, just before Carefree Highway. I, I think it's even a little south of the 303 off to the right-hand side. And they do a lot of that there when landscapers come in. They've got a different spot for them to go put their tree waste, and then they have a ship, you know, they ship it to a different composting plant. But mm-hmm. they said the one thing we have not been able to figure out are palm leaves. And we obviously have a lot of palm trees in the valley, that low water use. And you talk about wind resistant. Have you ever, ever seen a palm tree blown over from wind? No. I have not. That's very true. And it's crazy because they grow so tall. We're seeing a few out the window right now. And have such a small root ball. (laughs) If you've ever dug one out, you know, it's not like a a traditional root stock that you would think from a tree. But those leaves, so I've always thought, all right, if there's figuring out how to repurpose those back into, uh, you know, I don't know, casita roofing. Uh, for that style or, or what, but there's there's a, a use out there for palm leaves that's not being utilized because those they they'll they'll take those out separately and those just go into the landfill because right. the waxiness those really don't break down at all. Well, I wonder I wonder if that would be a good utility piece. Uh, maybe we can try this out if we got some contacts and stuff. We might might want to connect them together. We can get a little research uh, space going where we can actually remove grass. I mean, our Bermuda grass is a pain to get rid of. And if there were some more organic ways that we could get rid of Bermuda grass, one might be using those palm leaves. So you shave it down, solarize it, kind of put that on top and solarize it, and then put compost on top of that. So you got a good amount of compost or wood chip on top of that, doing what they call sheet mulching. But maybe if that was the bottom layer, we could actually get rid of that that uh, that crazy Bermuda grass we have here in Arizona. We call it the dinosaur Bermuda that some (laughs) some of y'all have in your gardens. Yeah, that that does it. It's here because it it does so well. <laughs> it does do very well, especially if you've got an area of, of, of Arizona where they've done a lot of foraging or they have, um, you know, you got your, your meadows for animals, for feed feed lots and stuff like that. If you've got uh, those those spaces for your animals like we do with our sheep, 
they have a variety that you barely have to water it and it's still gross. Now, the challenge with it is if I cover it over with a bunch of mulch, two years later, it comes growing back through that mulch. Those stolons are so hardy. They're about the, about the thickness of a pencil. And uh, they're going to keep alive for years and years. And then as that compost and that sheet mulching breaks down, eventually it pops back out. And then you can't get rid of it. And so that's one of the challenges we've had, I guess, from a transitioning standpoint, remodeling people's backyards, is finding organic ways to then remove that and convert it into beautiful gardenscapes. All right, we've got a couple calls that we're going to get to. First, I've got a text question that I want to ask you first. Uh, This homeowner has two mulberry trees. They estimate anywhere from 40 to 50 years old, uh, still doing great. They water, they fertilize, but have a family of woodpeckers that have moved in and as woodpeckers do, they pecking on the bark, and they're wondering, is this going to create any long-term negative effect or shorten the life of these mulberry trees? Well, it definitely could. I mean, anytime you have something pecking at a tree, it's possibly going to cause some challenges. If it's been there a long time, my guess is these woodpeckers are going after um, already decayed holes that are in the tree or gaps, and so they're kind of woodpecking into that and creating their homes inside of that space. But if they're just going up and down the bark, what it's an indicator of is that we might actually have some bug problems. There might be some things going on inside the tree, and I would highly recommend getting that checked out by a you know certified arborist that can really look into that and see what's going on for those trees specifically because they're going after bugs or they're building homes. If it's just building a home in an already rotted out spot, not as big of a challenge, but if it's going after bugs that are deep inside that bark, and then we might have a more systemic issue that might need to be addressed. So we appreciate the text. That's at 411923. Or if you'd like to jump on the line, one triple eight Rosie for you. Christine, Tina. I've got two names here. This is Tina. Tina. Good morning. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Go ahead with your question. The Okay, I have a had my yard redone last year and I planted they planted a red bush pistache, small one in the middle of the grass area, which is fine and dandy with me at the time. And then in going through my watering schedule, it's on its own drip system for 30 minutes, and then it gets that, and then it gets also the lawn water. And I was wondering if that is too much. Okay, so... If it's opening it up for disease or... Just a quick recap, because it... I don't know how that sounded on the listener's side. The phone connection wasn't the best. She has a red push pistache. She planted it in a lawn. It has its own drip irrigation that gets 30 minutes, plus then whatever the lawn irrigation gets. And she's wondering if that's too much. So I I wouldn't say too much. It's more about I don't know if we're getting deep enough to really make sure that this uh, tree's going to be as healthy as we'd like it to be. Because we got that surface water happen on a regular basis with the grass, that's good for the grass, but not as good for the tree. Now, that- I'm, I'm so glad they put in a separate one for that tree, though. That's great. But what I would recommend is— That grass is not letting that water get to the tree. No, it's not really getting to the tree. (laughs) You think I'm planting it in the lawn and it's getting all this water? No, the grass is still getting all the water. Right, and that deeper deeper system, hopefully it's subsurface. I hope hope that what you've got in that is that the the drip line is actually inside of a little tube that goes to a little perforated pipe down, and it goes down about two feet. That's what I'm hoping is happening. And 30 minutes, I, I don't know if 30 minutes is enough. If it's and I certainly wouldn't want it happening every day. What I'd recommend is that you water it more like once a week, but you're wanting to get that water to a minimum depth of about three feet, which may take a few more hours, 
but then you do it less frequently. So we're wanting to train that roots of that tree in the grass to grow as deep as possible. And uh, in the wintertime, we do that those types of waterings maybe once a month at most. And in the summertime, maybe once every two weeks for an established tree. So the size and age of that tree sounds like um, 30 minutes is not going to be deep enough. And I would definitely expand the frequency. So it's not happening every day. It should be once a week at the max. And find a way to test to see how deep it's going after that watering. That's going to be a key, too. What I had found is I've spent, I don't know, it was less than 50 bucks on a soil probe that's about three and a half feet tall. Mm-hmm. Fiberglass, got a metal tip. And in the summertime, I don't even care how long it's watering. I'll, I'll just go out and I'll see how deep it goes. And if it's not, start the cycle over again because – and throughout our yard, you know, What's happening over here is different than happening 100 feet over here. Might mm-hmm. be a different tree, might be a different soil. But on the weekends, I'll just use that soil probe and I'll go check when I've got my timers. Hey, the irrigation is turning off it's, and I'll see, okay, am I getting 6 inches down or am I getting 18 inches down or am I getting you know, 36 inches down? And if it needs more, just restart that timer again. Yep, that's right. And it's a lot of people ask us, well, how long should I water? It's like, well, I don't know your soil, but the easiest way to check across everybody's yard is based on your soil, everybody's going to be different. So it's all about the depth and then the frequency. So for my bigger trees, I want three feet deep at least once a week. And I'm often not going to rewater unless the top two inches are dry. So if you got something in the grass, obviously I'm not going to be able to get top two inches dry. So I'm going to have to look at how deep is it going when it's focused on watering my tree. Because I don't want my roots to go start going surface on me with my tree. That's how trees topple over in windstorms. Even a, an established tree can be converted to a wind toppler if you don't get that deep watering like you need. We have a listener who's texted in and said, what is that chemical called again? Jumbo something. Jumbo. (laughs) And it was something that relates to how a tree protects itself from other things growing. It's a a chemical that prevents other other plants from growing in its space. Juglone, J-U-G-L-O-N-E, or yeah, juglone. And that's that's what that chemical is. Uh, I mean, there are juggalone tolerant uh, plants out there. You can search that online. You can find some things that if you do have a juggalone producing tree and you still want to grow plants under it, then there are some things that you can. But it is also something that can poison us as humans. So just you want to be careful of that as well. That's why we don't eat the you know the outer husk of a of a pecan. You know, we just don't eat it. All right. Well, I hope you got that spelling down, Remy. You'll have to show me when I get home tonight because I didn't have time to write that down. But <laughs> I'm, I'll be curious as well. We have another texture at 411923 says the leaves of my orange tree are turning yellow from the tips only. So from the tips only, I mean, this time of year, we often see a little more yellowing on our citrus trees. And this year, more than ever, we had a lot more winter rain. And that winter rain in saturating that soil, what it does is it kind of chokes out the tree's ability to suck up the nitrogen it needs in order to get a full greening. And so right now, we love adding a little bit more um, like a liquid iron or chelated irons and being able to integrate that into the base and around the base of our trees to help our trees offset that extra soggy soil that they've had. And that should help green up all the way to the tip 
of our leaves. And now's a great time to do that, too. Uh, they're going to start budding out. Citrus trees are starting to bud. Some are starting to flower right now, depending on the varieties you got. Uh, so it's a really good idea to start getting these things greened up, getting, getting them some nitrogen. And chelated iron you pick up at any nursery garden center. That's right. They got it in granular form, and then there's also liquid varieties as well. And if I was going to do the granular application, like other fertilizers, do I have to come back and after I sprinkle it, do I need to stand there and water it in a little bit? I would recommend that because, I mean, it does look like little pellets, and so we like to rake, rake it in a little bit under our citrus trees and then get a, get a good deep watering right then and there, and that, uh, that definitely helps a lot. There is a little bit of nitrogen in the iron, iron chelated iron, but it's more about the iron being there to help in the wet scenarios to be able to open up and, and accept the nitrogen is kind of the key. On a granular application, when we're talking fertilizers, you know, chelated iron, start and grow, citrus fruit, nut fruit, fertilizers, is there any risk or long-term effects if the chickens were out there scratching and they ate it? It depends on the variety. I mean, you, you can have some very uh, explorative chickens. I mean, some of them like to venture out and try new things, <laughs> but usually the – if if it's more of a dirt color, here's my, my kind of rule. If it's, it's, if it's brightly colored or white colored and it looks kind of like seeds, that's a higher likelihood my chickens might pick that up. They do have tongues they still can taste, so they'll often just spit it right out. But I'm going to have a higher likelihood of pecking at it if it's got bright colors to it. So if I've got more of the nature zone or some, some of the other varieties that are out there that are more naturally oriented or organic type, those pelletized uh, fertilizers are much less likely they're going to eat it because it looks closer to their own chicken poop. So you know, and if they do eat it without spitting it out, and I mean, am I going to get a supersized chicken and a supersized egg, or is that still going to be a an okay egg to eat, or is it going to be like Rosie's chicken that one time they actually got into diazinon? Oh well, you you know you you might have a chicken that might act a little more sluggish. It might uh, do a little bit of that, but it's not going to accelerate its growth. It'll probably actually slow its appetite. Is what'll more likely happen, uh, and create a little more mess out the back end. So, could you still eat the eggs without any? I don't know of any specific study on that one in particular, but uh, most of those things, uh, if you stick towards more of the organic type fertilizers, you're going to be fine because. Chickens are pecking stuff up all the time, and it's not going to translate into their egg. But if you're getting more of the synthetic types and they're picking that stuff up, there could be some systemic-type chemicals in there that would then translate into your egg and your egg yolk. So that would be a concern. I'm just curious. I, yeah. I had stopped doing a lot of granular application for that reason. It's just the chickens, they've learned how to fly out of the coop, and I've, I just kind of let them because they just they go do their own thing. They eat the bugs. I hardly have to feed them. We still get the eggs. Um, and you know they're they're quite a productive animal when you're talking about productive pets. Oh yeah. Uh, and in addition to just egg production, if you let them roam, there's a lot of additional benefits. But then I had wondered about that with the fertilizer, so I was going to more liquid applications on those. But real quick, uh, your website, agriscaping.com. Find us right online. And somebody could schedule a consultation to evaluate their yard and turn it into a productive producing landscape yep that's the first step just go to agriscaping.com click on get started and you'll find out how we do our initial assessment to help you be successful in your garden